Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, Rob Dixon, my medical director, joining us today. Good afternoon, Casey. We're going to finish up with Entry 4 into the Serial Killer series today, and we're going to talk about altered mental status. So if you're picking up midstream or you've not listened to any of the other prior episodes, the point of the Serial Killer series is to really sort of flip the way that we talk about medical education. We start with often the disease process and teach from there. So we've talked about CHF, we've talked about asthma, we've talked about shock on previous podcasts, but that's not how patients come to us. They don't call us and tell us they have CHF, they call us and tell us they're short of breath or they have chest pain or they have abdominal pain and the scene's chaotic. And we've got multiple inputs from EKGs to vital signs, entitle, blood glucose, all the incoming information that we have, then the history from the patient, the history from the family, barking dogs, screaming kids, crowded homes, blocked doorways, all the the chaos that we have to deal with. To try to drill that down into a organized differential is the most challenging part of this job. So how do we take that chief complaint, altered mental status, and start thinking about a differential before we even arrive on scene? And the things that we need to consider in these situations, just as we have with chest pain, with shortness of breath, with abdominal pain, is the, the killers, right? Not the chronic things, not the, the urgent care uh, diagnoses, but the ones that are going to be time sensitive and the ones that can harm our patients when they're in our care. That's where we as emergency providers have to begin. So today we're going to focus, like I said, on the altered patients. So when people call with altered mental status, what are the five things that can kill them emergently? And again, we're sticking with five. There are more than five, but these are our, these are our five because if we go to a list of six, then I'm going to miss one every time. So what are our five ultra mental status killers? Dr. Dr. Patrick's always hedging his bet because he knows he's going to get feedback and say, well, what about this number six? Understand there are more. We pick these five. These are the most common that we see in our clinical practice and our service. So number one, stroke, right? Ischemic or hemorrhagic. Uh, Understand that some strokes, it depends on where you catch them in their spectrum of disease, may present with altered mental status. An anterior circulation stroke, kind of laid on because of pressure and swelling, may present with altered mental status. And remember, posterior strokes can present with an acute onset altered mental status. We'll kind of delve more into that when we get to strokes. So stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic, seizures, infections, either meningitis or encephalitis, or just sepsis in, a, in an elderly, frail person. Sepsis in and of itself, a bad infection can lead to altered mental status. Don't forget endocrine, number one there being hypoglycemia, right? If I run into your house in the middle of the night and yell altered mental status, everybody should jump out of their bed and yell, check a blood glucose. Every time, every patient, it's absolutely vital. And the last, tox whether that's an exposure or an intoxication. And sometimes it's hard for us to sort out, isn't it, Casey? Yeah, so where do we start? Just like in the other podcasts, a little bit of broken record here, but we start in route. What we like to teach our medics here at MCHD is to think through the call, pre-plan as you're on the way, right? Think through, okay, patient's altered, stroke, seizure, 
infection, endocrine, tox, and that's going to lead you right into checking that sugar before you even before you get there. Can I go back uh, to a Jim Davison moment that uh, he always said he's one of the guys that trained uh, his couple of, a year before me, right? If we do not think of it, if you do not think about these top five, you will not get the diagnosis. And that's so true, right? The, the times I think where I've missed a diagnosis, I haven't been rational and say, what did the patient call for? What am I here for? I.e. a serial killer, abdominal pain, ultramental stash, chest pain. What is the top five absolute worst diagnoses I could miss on this? Right. If you don't think about it, you will not get the diagnosis. It wasn't him, but I did have a, a medical school internal medicine uh, staff who was notorious for, I think the man had Harrison's Manual of Medicine, which is thousands of pages, literally memorized, cold. And his differential would be esoteric and large even if it was a CHF exacerbation, something simple and straightforward. And his point always was, we don't have to work every single one of these things up every single time. It's not going to be these rare things very often. But if your differential contains otitis media, for example, what's every patient going to have? Otitis, otitis media. media. So his point was, enlarge your differential, and that allows you con to consider those other things. So... Roll up on the altermental status call with these five diagnoses in mind. Watch your vital signs. They're vital. You know, watch for fever. This is one where fever is going to be important in one of these, a couple of these even, that we, we may not always think about fever being terribly important in the EMS setting. Beware of and notice your surroundings, probably more so in, in the altermental status patient than, than the other serial killer series that we talked about. Why? Because exposures, intoxication, the evidence is going to be on scene. And when you pull away from the scene, you leave that evidence. So it's often vital for me as the emergency department provider to know how did it smell, how did it look, what pill bottles were laying around. And, you know, our medics at MCHD are great at bringing all that information to me. It's vital to us as emergency physicians. Do a, do a good exam here and a good neuro exam. And I would say, please don't come egg my house. But the most overrated exam finding exam point in the neuro exam is the pupils. And it's the first thing everybody wants to tell me. And it's the first thing everybody wants to know. And I'll be honest, I very rarely, if any in my, you know, 15 years or so of clinical practice have pupils ever been useful. Every now and then you'll see a Horner syndrome where maybe it's useful, but if the pupils are blown, I got news for you. At that point, there's not much else to do. Right? We need to look at things like gaze preference, strength and tone. Can the patient localize pain? Ex ex expose the patient. You know, look, look for facial droop. Uh, look for uh, rigidity. There's other things in the neuro exam, even that we can do in a rudimentary neuro exam in the EMS setting beyond just pupils. Um, also think about the diabetic foot. Think about Fournier's gangrene in the septic elderly patient. So look at patient's feet. Ask about rashes. Think about, you know, gluteal abscesses, Fournier's gangrene, for those that don't know, is a severe necrotizing cellulitis of the groin region. Been guilty of working up a patient very thoroughly and finding that at hour two, which if I'd have known at hour zero, I would have taken no time. That's a surgical emergency. So all you have to do is look to see it. And again, OPQRST, think about the onset, the things that provoke and palliate what makes it better and worse, the quality, the radiation, the severity, 
timing is often key in these diagnoses throughout all parts of the serial serial killer series. And then finally, think about the medical history. Do they have a seizure history? Are they on Dilantin? Uh, Are they on Keppra? Do they have diabetes in a hypoglycemic patient? Have they started new meds? Antiplatelets, anticoagulants from the standpoint of traumatic intracerebral hemorrhage or traumatic uh, stroke. So those are the spots where I would start, and I would be remiss if I didn't toss you stroke to discuss further. So tell our listeners a little bit about stroke basics. There's plenty of other podcasts on this topic, but how do you approach it from just a really basic standpoint? Yeah, from a basic standpoint, you know, first a little epidemiology. You look at the numbers. This is a huge, huge illness. Um, About 80% of these things are ischemic or just a lack of clot causing a lack of blood flow, and the other 20% are hemorrhagic, whether that's an intracerebral hemorrhage or usually a hypertensive hemorrhage of one of the small perforating vessels. Over time, blood pressure wears and wears and wears on these small blood vessels, and then ultimately, one of them ruptures and causes a hemorrhage or a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is the big vessels uh, just underneath the surface of the brain they are taking blood to the brain. Um, I think of strokes, Casey, as anterior and posterior. And anterior is the vast majority of these things, and it's the stroke symptoms we've always learned, right? It's face, arm, and speech. Uh, so kind of, those, kind of those big things by the middle cerebral artery and anterior cerebral arteries or the anterior circulation of the brain. Um, well, how do we diagnose these? We typically use a screen tool like the FAST exam, right? Face, arm, speech, and then T reminds us of time. Posterior strokes, remember, posterior is not your thinking, awareness, kind of higher cortical function. Posterior strokes are kind of our dog brain, right? There are uh, breathing and there are uh, alertness and uh, some of the cranial nerves live in the posterior circulation. So when I think of of a posterior stroke, they present a lot differently. And I think of the five Ds of the posterior circulation, so dizzy or vertigo. Diplopia or double vision, dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, dysmetria or limb ataxia, they have clumsy limbs, either upper extremities or lower extremities or even their trunk. And D, the last D is dysarthria, so difficulty enunciating their speech. So the five Ds of the posterior circulation, dizzy or vertigo, a sense of motion when there's none, diplopia or double vision, dysmetria, limb ataxia of the upper lower limbs or the trunk, dysphagia, difficulty swallowing or feeling like you're choking when you're swallowing, and dysarthria, difficulty with your enunciating your speech. Remember, the key here in these vascular events is this is an acute event, i.e. Dr. Patrick is sitting here in the podcast booth with me, and he is completely normal, and then he is not normal and develops these symptoms, whether they're a posterior or an anterior symptom. What do we do with these patients? We use, uh, at MCHG, we use a severity uh, index. So remember, kind of a brief review, less than 4.5 hours is a candidate of, of last known well as a candidate for TPA reperfusion therapy. And anything 4.5 hours up to 24 hours may be a candidate for endovascular therapy, which is this novel therapy where we go in surgically into the, the, the vessel and retrieve the clot. These patients uh, have uh, fantastic outcomes, uh, but it can only be done at a comprehensive stroke center or a a thrombectomy-capable stroke center. So know your 
know the capabilities of your stroke centers here at MCHD. We do a screening exam, i.e. stroke, yes or no. We have a high suspicion of stroke. We make sure we think about the mimics like seizures and hypoglycemia and the other uh, mimics and try to rule those out the best we can. And then we apply a severity criteria. Here at MCHD, we use the LA Motor Score. Um, lots of places, some of the common ones are the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale or the Race Score. Regardless of your, your, your severity score, you're used to it. If you have a positive severity score, a lambda four or greater, a race of five or greater, or other, your, your medical authority places that severity score, those patients should be triaged preferentially to a comprehensive stroke center that can take care of those patients. So you mentioned seizure when talking about stroke. So let's roll right into number two, and that's uh, seizure. And the confusion post-seizure can often present as altrumental status. So if the patient seizes and family or friends find the patient, they may not have even seen the, the seizure episode. So that may be just a straight altered mental status call. And the confusion post-seizure is otherwise known as a post-ictal state. And really, I explain that to patients and family as your neurons just fired uncontrollably, nonstop, all at once, the brain has to reset. And so that's the reset of the, you know, the, the synapses. That's the post-ictal state. How do we say seizure, yes or no, based on exam? What are some things we can look at after the fact? Because again, a lot of times, no one's gonna have seen the seizure. They're gonna find the patient confused, maybe heard the patient fall or heard the patient thrashing. What are some things that we can look for that helps us push towards seizure and maybe away from other diagnoses and a couple of the big things are lateral tongue lesions are very suggestive of seizure. Also, incontinence is another that can often point towards seizure. And really, the big one is past history of seizure on seizure medications or medications that can lower your seizure threshold. So things like Dilantin, Keppra, Tegretol, seizure meds on the patient's list, a history of seizures in the past. One of the big medications that I always harp on Dr. Dixon's probably sick of hearing my rant, but ask about tramadol. Look for tramadol on the patient's list. Sometimes it won't be on their list because they're taking it PRN. Maybe they got it for some back pain or for a sprain or strain or a mild fracture. Up to 8 to 10% of first-time seizures have been associated with tramadol. So it's definitely not the safest medication. It's not my favorite medication, and it can really lower your seizure threshold and increase uh, your risk of first-time seizure. So look for tramadol, ask about it. Consider withdrawal. Maybe it's not a medication that they're on, but it's a medication that they recently stopped. So are you on any medicines for seizure? Yes or no. Are you on tramadol? Yes or no. Have you stopped any medicines recently? That would be the third question that I would add. Me that medicine also, I'm getting the, the uh, bottle sipping uh, Pictionary game across from me, but alcohol as well. So, have you stopped Xanax, Clonopin, Ativan, Budweiser? Yeah, Budweiser, because withdrawal can cause seizures as well. So, stroke number one, seizure number two, and again, we could talk about treatment for seizure. We all know benzos, benzos, benzos. Um, that's another another topic for another podcast. Let's move on into infection, both brain specific infections and 
more systemic type situations. Kind of tease those two out for us. Yeah, I think that's a great point because as we said earlier, depending on the physiologic reserve of the patient, any infection can cause confusion, altered mental status in folks. Even And you have to think of those common sources of infection. We're going to talk about the brain specifically here, a meningitis or encephalitis, right, which is just a, a infection of the the coverings of the brain or the brain tissue itself. And typically we think of this with headache and stiff neck um, and with an altered mental status, right? Bacterial, which is the most severe type, which we worry about the most. It's actually the rarest type. Viral's way more common, uh, but bacterial can be very deadly, very, very quick. And many of these patients are going to be altered. So think about when you see severe headache, photophobia, a stiff neck with a fever, you have to think of some type of infectious process in the brain. More common, as we said, can be your patient from a nursing home, pre-existing comorbidities that has a very low physiologic reserve. It has a has a even a minor infection. And I've seen altered mental status with all the above. Think of the sources of infection, a pulmonary infection. Are they coughing? Are they hypoxic? Do they have rowels on their uh or crackles on their chest x-ray, some abnormality on their chest x-ray, or an uh, unexplained tachypnea, you think of sepsis, right? So pulmonary, the skin infections, remember, always, 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 these patients are altered. They should always be undressed and completely examined. And Dr. Patrick didn't tell his other, one of his other clinical stories of working up an altered mental status, and he flipped a patient over, and what did he find on the back? Fentanyl patches. He Fentanyl just gave patches. a foreshadowing into number five. Yeah. So, I mean, always, always, always examine these patients, especially if they can't talk to us. That's little bitty kids and people with altered mental status. Other common sources of infection, right? Can it be a blood infection? Are they a hemodialysis? Do they have a temporary catheter? They have a pick line, some indwelling line. Are they at risk for a blood infection? And then urine infections, very, very common. So pulmonary, skin, blood, and urine. When you detect an infection, we apply a, a score called a Q-SOFA score to decide whether to alert our hospital partners to a sepsis alert, to kind of give them a heads up to rally the, the, the team and the resources necessary to take care of these complex patients. Uh, the Q-SOFA score is one of those scores, and it simply looks at three clinical parameters, blood pressure less than 100, respiratory rate greater than 22, or altered mental status at any time. They're each worth one point. A score of two or greater buys you a sepsis alert. When we think about managing these patients, right, shock is shock, is shock right? It's a distributive process, right? The, the blood vessels get too leaky. That's another podcast. They're leaky. They're dilated. So what do we have to do? We have to fill the tank early. So generous fluids up to 30 milliliters per kilogram bolus. And think about early pressers, either push dose in the early resuscitation and then moving on quickly to norepinephrine. I'm going to dodge the uh, 30 cc per kilo naysayers out there. They're going to come Sorry. at us with knives They're going to come spears. at us. Early, early generous fluids while en route from a pre-hospital setting, especially with our short transport times here at MCHD, I don't think we're going to flood anyone. And if they're QSOFA positive and hypotensive, that's the right thing to do to start. We'll sort it out more so when we get to the ED. So that takes stroke, seizure, infection, and moves us into endocrine uh, hypoglycemia being the main endocrine altered mental status player. Now, we're not going to talk about hyponatremia or hypocalcemia. 
some of the other more rare endocrine conditions, but those can also cause altered mental status as well. But blood glucose will always be first. And I love it. As you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, if someone runs in and wakes you up and says the patient's altered, your response should be, what's the blood sugar? Just like breathing. It should be reflexive. You shouldn't have to think about it. Hypoglycemia can also be a cause of seizure as well. So don't, don't forget it in those patients. Consider medical causes uh, when patients that are hypoglycemic want to refuse. And that's a big issue with the hypoglycemic altered patient. You give them some oral glucose, you give them some IV dextrose, and they feel better. They want to defer going to the hospital. Make sure there's no obvious infection. Make sure they're not intoxicated. Make sure their neurologic exam is normal. Make sure they can eat and drink and walk because otherwise you'll be running on them again in four to six hours. It must be uncomplicated and easily explained. Has to be above 80 after treatment. So can't be their first time. It has to be something that's been worked up in the past and the patient has to be obviously back at baseline. So. And I'd refer back to Dr. Patrick's High Risk Refusal podcast, which I think is one of the most important and informative podcasts for, for all medical providers, not just EMS providers, but it's a really good list. If you haven't had a listen, have a listen to that. I think it's really, really valuable, especially in this particular type subset of patient here. Because when these patients have been hypoglycemic in the past and it's happened to them before, as y'all know, they don't want to go to the hospital for it. And, it's, and we know that we can leave them at home safely if we tick the correct boxes, we have to be diligent about making sure they can care for themselves and making sure there's not a secondary cause for their hypoglycemia besides, quote unquote, I didn't eat. That may be it. It's going to be it most of the time. But we have to be the ones that check the boxes and make sure that it's not something uh, more severe or hiding sort of under the surface there. So that takes us through number four. Finish up with uh, the toxicologic exposure ingestion number five. Before we roll into it, I'll just finish the story that you alluded to. I had a patient altered, was supposedly normal, no prior issues brought into the emergency department. We did a head CAT scan. We sent blood work. Couldn't The CAT scan was normal. The blood work was coming back normal. The chest x-ray was clear. The patient was still altered. I thought, man, we're going to have to do do a spinal tap. We've talked about meningitis. This patient probably has meningitis. And we took the gown and rolled them up on their left lateral decubitus position and tucked their knees. And as soon as I moved the gown to the side, the back looked like uh, a fentanyl patch O-Rama. There was probably 12 patches on the patient's back. So in the end, the patient didn't need a, a spinal tap. They needed some uh, gentle naloxone and supportive care. So a very big obvious branch in the patient's care just by looking. So I'll lead in to Dr. Dixon to discuss a little bit about tox exposures and ingestions with the bullet point to using your eyes, your ears, your nose is important in these toxicologic exposure ingestion patients because oftentimes the evidence is left on the scene. So as EMS providers, we're vital at being able to bring that to the emergency department to allow the ED to take that and run with it. So tell us a little bit about how you approach that. Dr. So I love that segue. Uh, you led right into one of my big biases and I teach in academic center and uh, I've seen it more times than, than uh, I would like. 
but we've all kind of been there as EMS providers and on the other side of the of the bed where the uh, altered patient comes in and the team just swamps them and uh, doesn't listen to the EMS provider. And then uh, lo and behold, about 20 minutes later, the patient is lined up and they're stripped and flipped and examined. And the uh, usually young doctor turns around and says, where are those EMS guys? What's the story here? Right, 20 minutes later when the EMS service has already left. And so that's why it's vital, right? It's vital from our side of the bed to, to establish stability and then have a listen to what the story is, right? Because if, if EMS leaves, they leave with that story. They leave with those clues that they saw that what kind of a, what kind of environment the patient came from, what type of toxins were potentially available. Um, did it look like something that was uh, an ingestion, intentional or accidental ingestion? Was there a history of ingestions? Are there any other witnesses that are going to be able to provide meaningful history of this patient? So please, 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 on the doctor side of it, make sure that you establish stability, but then take the time to hear the EMS report and ask those very vital questions before that information drives down the road to the next run. And if you're ignored for 25 minutes, where's the EMS team going to be when you ask for them? Busy. Gone. <laughs> Away, out the door. So for all you non-paramedic listeners out there, you may have an acute intervention that you want to secure, the airway, uh, IV access, some physical assessment. It's fine, but acknowledge the EMS providers. Tell them their information is important to you Ask them to hang out for a second, communicate, be a normal, reasonable adult, and you can do both. So it's not, you know, we act like if we don't answer somebody right away that we can't acknowledge them. Acknowledge them. Tell them you want to hear the story, but you've got to do X, Y, or Z first. And guess what? If you acknowledge them and tell them that, they, like normal humans, will also wait. Absolutely, they Crazy. will. Or the, my, my experience is they'll pitch in and help you, right? And yeah, you'll do even, it all together. It's even more so. Even easier. Yes. So the key to these patients, I think, Casey, is history, history, history. You know, figure out what the environment is to try to sort out some of these things. Uh, EKGs could be key here. I'd say that's if I had two tests I could get in the tox patient, it would be a blood sugar and EKG. And why? To look for those killers, right? To look for widening of the QRS that would indicate some type of uh, toxic ingestion that poisoned a sodium channel poison of some sort. Um, if that's the case, MCHD, we treat with sodium bicarbonate. If there's any question of some acidotic state of hyperkalemia, you have why bizarre uh, QRS, you can refer to our hyperkalemia podcast or our podcast 360 where we show the EKGs and talk about this. But I would add calcium chloride or calcium gluconate, whichever your service uses, and, and bicarbonate. Calcium to stabilize that myocardium in a potential hyper-K patient and albuterol and uh, bicarb to drive uh, that pH and get a shift of those potassiums back intracellularly where they're not toxic. And I would just say, from a classic teaching standpoint, from a protocol standpoint, we had to make a recent change here in our protocols because this is often taught from a sodium channel blockade standpoint, tricyclics, right? And while they were commonplace 25 years ago we see them still used now some for resistant depression for migraines for sleep some other some other indications but realistically we're probably going to see sodium channel blockade from an ingestion standpoint more commonly with other medications things like benadryl um, 
psychiatric meds uh, that are the combo meds like Welbutrin or Seroquel, maybe even, um, you know, other other psych meds. So other SSRIs in large, large quantities. Uh, methadone, for example, is another one. So there's lots of other meds besides TCAs that can cause sodium channel blockade and QRS widening. So if you've got an ingestion situation, I would make that a blanket ingestion. That's the way we changed it in our protocol. If you see wide complex QRS, slower rates, bicarb, bicarb, bicarb. And it's an easy one to assess because what's going to happen if you repeat your EKG if you're successful? It's going to narrow. QRS is going to narrow. Right. So that leads us into our take-home points and our closing. Always expose the patient. You don't want to do a spinal tap on somebody for altermental status when they've got a back plastered with fentanyl patches. Look for cellulitis. Look for diabetic foot ulcers. Uh, these things can all cause altermentation, especially as we as we get older. Early fl early fluids, early pressures, and sepsis. Uh, look for lateral tongue lesions. These are highly predictive of true seizure. Don't forget the five D's of posterior stroke: dysphagia, dysmetria, dysarthria, diplopia, and dizziness or vertigo. About a fifth of ischemic strokes are posterior, so this is not a small number. And then fifth and finally, ask about tramadol in your seizure patients. One in 10 new first-time seizures is going to be from tramadol. So that wraps us up with the Serial Killer Series. Hope the listeners out there liked this. This was uh, just a, a random idea that came to fruition. So please send us feedback if you have any questions or comments podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Dixon. Absolutely. Thank you, Casey. That wraps up our Serial Killer series. You may see some more out there on Podcast 360. If you have other chief complaints you want us to add, let us know. As always, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.